What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by my man, Brandon Cruz. Brandon, thank you for being back. Absolutely, Jeremiah. Always a pleasure, my man. So today, we are going to dig into the Lean Gains Blueprint Part 2. So, um, what, two weeks ago here, we really dug into kind of why a Lean Gains approach might make more sense versus like a typical quote-unquote dirty bulk approach that you hear about. So today, really, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the application and kind of the X's and O's. Like, you definitely made a very compelling argument on our last episode about why we should take the Lean Gains approach. I'm cool to see this then carry over for the listener into application about kind of how to go about this. So if you're cool with it, we'll just go ahead and kick it off the question. Is that good for you? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Cool. So, so my first question for you is what, and I in a pretty similar vein to what we're talking off, about off air, what would be the drawbacks of using a large surplus and kind of going with this dirty bulk approach instead of a lean gains approach? All right. So um, I think the original view of bulking phases or building phases was that this like was a period where calorie, uh, calories needed to be pushed up as much as possible. And you just continue eating more and more in order to gain muscle mass, which is why so many believe that a large surplus is not only needed to grow muscle, but is beneficial to the process. And I think it's safe to say that many of us have taken this approach. I'm sure you have. I, I personally can tell you that I have, where we thought that we were maximizing our growth potential by pushing calories as high as we could. But I also believe that anyone that has truly done this can tell you that they gained a lot more fat than A, that they wanted. And or they expected, and although it did gain, you know, yield gains in muscle mass, it made their next fat loss phase longer, more difficult. And at one point, they started to notice that they they were accumulating more body fat than muscle mass, which turned a phase, you know, a building phase should be about building muscle, building your physique, bettering your body composition. So it turns a phase that is, you know, really centered around that. So you know. One that is, you know, you constantly feel stuffed and you feel uncomfortable and then you start not liking the way you feel or look and it has downstream effects on so many other aspects. So I, you know, I'll tell you from my own personal experience, I know I myself took this dirty bulk approach early on where I was constantly pushing calories. I got way too fixated with like the scale and chasing weight gain. Um, really, and it was because I had this mentality that the more weight I gained, the more muscle I'd gain as a result. And honestly, this just resulted in me gaining body fat more quickly and getting to over 250 pounds at the time. So I was a lot bigger than I am now, but I didn't like the way that I looked, but I also started to realize that I was suffering the metabolic and health drawbacks of this approach. And that's why, honestly, when we did our first podcast, it was based on my health centric coaching model. And a lot of that, mm-hmm. a lot of those approaches that I utilize, the biofeedback markers that I um, track with clients are based on the experiences that I had and that I've had with my clients early on. Like we were talking off air, this is you know my ninth year coaching. So I've been through those phases where dirty bulking and aggressive surpluses were all the rage. And that's the only way that we knew to go about this. So we thought that that was you know, the end-all be-all approach to building muscle. However, in time, we, we grow, we adapt. And we evolve our methods. So that's really where I've taken more of this, say, leans, gains, or more of um, a health-centric based approach to gaining muscle in the most effective manner possible. And, you know, besides like the visual drawbacks, I think a lot of people will focus just primarily on that. But there's tons of other negatives that come along with this type of a dirty bulking approach, 
where you utilize a larger surplus than needed to gain muscle. You know, at one point, many of those who take this approach will start developing insulin resistance from being in an excess calorie surplus, which causes them to start partitioning more calories to fat mass than muscle mass. And you also start noticing that you're having harder time getting pumps in the gym. And this is something I've gotten feedback from clients over the years where they're just pushing calories and we have their carbs super high and they're starting to realize that they're not getting pumps anymore. And that's an indication that they are no longer partitioning and shuttling those nutrients into the muscle cell. It's going more towards adipose tissue, which isn't going to get a pump. You can't pump up fat. So besides like the insulin resistance part, the pumps being diminished, we start noticing that inflammation levels increase as a result of this increase in body fat, which is one of the main, you know, many reasons why people start retaining water. You'll, you'll have clients be like, listen, I'm having this water retention, you know, some edema, things like that. Also, another thing about using a large surplus is you have an increased likelihood of your digestion going awry as you're literally like constantly in this hypercaloric state of being overfed, which often results in people feeling bloated, they feel gassy, distended. It's, it's just honestly uncomfortable. And then with all that, we start seeing training performance start to become impaired as you're rapidly gaining weight, but you're losing aerobic fitness in the, in the process. So essentially, you'll start noticing that you're out of breath in between sets. That a lot of times with this dirty bulking approach comes like the slashing of cardio. So people prioritize the muscle building aspect so much that they don't think about, let me keep my fitness in check. It's all about gaining muscle, gaining scale weight. So it's like this um, double negative, essentially. And not that everyone tracks you know, the metrics that I do, but I personally, with myself and my clients, track things like fasted blood glucose, blood pressure, and resting heart rate. And whenever I've had a client come to me who has been, in, been utilizing this dirty bulk type of approach, these values are significantly raised as compared to when they were leaner, which shows some of the negative health effects this type of approach can have. So you go through this long phase of pushing calories and you're really you know, doing your best to try to um, gain muscle, but you end up only feeling like pretty shitty and having to diet harder and longer during your next fat loss phase. And then another thing that I like to take into consideration that although the goal of building muscle or, or of a building phase is to gain muscle, it's also a time to focus on doing things we may not be able to do during something like a fat loss phase, such as having off-plan meals or free meals. And so with me and my, my clients, I personally like to have clients take at least one free meal a week during a building phase. But we have to keep in mind, this can drive up the total surplus. So if I did take this dirty bulking approach where I had them at a larger surplus, and then they took a free meal on top of that, that's only going to yield even greater increases in fat gain. So taking a more moderate approach to this or this lean gaining as approach helps to mitigate this. So we not only are gaining muscle, but we also have some increased flexibility for the events, for the occasions, for the vacations that we want, you know? Absolutely, man. I really like the holistic approach to that, not just from like, hey, insulin resistance increases, <clears throat> um, pumps decrease, training performance decreases, but also like from the mental side of things. I, the, the free meal in a building phase is actually something like the last six months we started to implement a lot more because I, I agree. I think from a mental perspective, it seems so beneficial for clients to like have that little bit of a break throughout the week to just be a little bit more flexible with food, especially like if you've been through a long dieting phase. I just, it just seems like it's something that's so mentally beneficial. And I've seen honestly, like that really seems to improve adherence a lot through the rest of the week, like knowing that we have that free meal, but that's, that's kind of a different topic. So 
I, I, I really like the holistic viewpoint from like both the physiological and psychological perspectives why that's important. Past what you touched on there, are there any other reasons that would be more advantageous for us to take a lean gains approach than in a building phase? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the top one when we're talking about maximizing muscle gain is that you're going to gain more lean mass with less body fat accrual. So from a visual aspect, you're going to look better. You're going to have better insulin sensitivity and nutrient partitioning. Like I mentioned before, we're going to have better biofeedback markers, both objectively and subjectively. You're going to feel better. You're going to look better. You're going to perform in the gym better. Um, better digestion, more optimized absorption of those nutrients, less inflammation. So you're not going to have that water retention. You're not going to be carrying pounds of water weight and seeing all these fluctuations between week to week, uh, better pumps in the gym. Like I mentioned, one of the drawbacks of this dirty bulking approach is that you start losing pumps in the gym. So Mm -hmm. being at a a, more of a slight surplus is going to allow you to have better nutrient partitioning so that you partition more of those carbohydrates to muscle and get a better pump. So you look better in the gym, you feel better, you perform better. You're going to be able to have a longer, more productive growth phase without needing as many mini cuts to tidy up and lose the excess body fat you gained. And that's something I really noticed with people that take more of this aggressive surplus is that it's almost like they're doing mini bulks and mini cuts. Like they're not Mm -hmm. staying in a surplus long enough because what ends up happening is they push the surplus so hard out the gates then they get to a point where they've accumulated body fat and they're uncomfortable. They don't look the way that they want to. And they realize that they need to now lose body fat to become more comfortable and create more runway to build muscle from. So if you're constantly in this like pendulum swinging from extreme to extreme, where you're going from pushing excess surplus to going into a, a calorie deficit, you're minimizing your ability to gain muscle. So Really, when I'm looking, I'm never like, you know, I've mentioned this to you many times. I'm never looking 12 weeks ahead. I'm looking 12 months ahead. I really want long-term progression. And with that comes taking a more moderate approach, which is going to allow for more runway to build muscle and stay in a sufficient surplus to build muscle where you're not constantly having to, you know, go into a deficit to clean up both the metabolic and also the visual um you know, consequences of having pushed the surplus too heavily. And then the other thing is, you know, I work with a lot of physique athletes, but even those that are lifestyle clients, a lot of times we're, you know, periodizing the year in terms of nutritional periodization to go from building phases to fat loss phases to reverse dieting phases. And the reason for that is because they have certain events, whether that be a a show, you know, um, a photo shoot, a vacation, a wedding that they want to look better for. But if you take this aggressive, like larger surplus approach, you know, it's going to end in more body fat. And when I have someone take more of a lean gains approach, when they're using a moderate surplus, they get less, they have less fat to lose in their next fat loss phase, which leads to not only a less difficult diet, but a shorter diet. And then also from more of an objective standpoint and talking, you know, speaking about health, I also see that I see better blood work. I see lower fasted glucose. I see a better maintenance of a healthy resting heart rate and then also healthier blood pressure values in my clients who take on this lean gains approach to building phases as compared to other clients who prefer we really push the calories and try to gain as much and as fast as possible. And like, you know, I'm going to tell you what I do on average, but it always comes down to the preference of the client. So ultimately there are clients of mine that say, listen, I really want, you know, I'll give them a target rate of gain and they want to push it. They want to see how much you know muscle that they can maximize, how many calories they can get in. And we take that approach, but also on the back end, I'm educating them on some of the ramifications that I'm seeing, some of the drawbacks or the detriments that I'm seeing, not only to their physique, but also to the health side of things. And that's why I've had clients that have been dead set in this 
you know, aggressive surplus approach. And I've let, you know, I've coached them through it to the best of my ability. But then at the end of that phase, when we've really done a reassessment and a needs analysis going forward, they've realized we could have done this better. So in their subsequent, their next building phase, they've taken more of this leaner gains approach that I promote and that I believe in, and they've seen better results as, as you know, a product. So, you know, I would say the proof is in the progress and the proof is in the pudding. So it really comes down to not only what I'm seeing in the research, like we discussed on our last podcast, but what I've seen with hundreds of clients and the, the advantages to taking a more moderate surplus where you're sufficiently giving enough nutrients to fuel the muscle building process, but you're not going into this excess, which is only spilling into, you know, more body fat approval. Absolutely. And I know I can speak from, and I, even when we did, so our first podcast where you broke down your seventh phase system, um, I had taken a lot more aggressive approach to my building phase than I think it was like right below 240 at the end of that. I remember listening to that. So to be transparent, like this is something that I've changed my mind about a lot over the last like year and a half. I think it was maybe just a little over a year actually since we like had that discussion. You definitely mm-hmm. helped like change my mind a lot on that. But I remember like listening to that and be like, shit, <laughs> I can relate to <laughs> so much of this. Like you talking about like just being so winded and aerobically you're just so deconditioned and pumps deteriorating and all these things where it's like damn that really does it and it has been very interesting even from like both my personal anecdote and coaching with clients through like a more of a lean games approach to see again like your rate of actual progress or increasing the log books and like all these metrics that we're looking at like that isn't from my experience slower with a lean games approach but you do feel so much better throughout the process and like you want to take your shirt off or whatever it is it's like you feel good to do that as well and i think there is also a lot of value to just like feeling good and actually and it's kind of vain but there's a lot of value being able to like feel good and appreciate the way you look throughout the building process and i think that does make it a lot more enjoyable in the long term as well absolutely I, i always say that we cannot separate physiology from psychology so it's not that we should be heavily fixated during a building phase on exactly how we look because there is going to be some body fat accrual. And that's one thing that a lot of people, especially after this podcast said, what are you saying? You know, they asked me, are you saying we can't gain any body fat in the building phase? I said, absolutely not. Like I even explicitly said, we will never gain a pound of solid muscle or a pound of solid fat. It is always going to be a pound of mixed tissue. However, if we could preferentially approach this phase in a manner where we optimize the amount of lean muscle accrual that you get in comparison to fat gain, you will look better, you will feel better. And there's so much benefit. There's so many benefits behind that because it is, you know, a lot of what we do is, you know, especially in this physique realm is based on how we look. And if you don't look good and you, or you feel that you don't look good and you're lacking confidence, it's going to affect you both in the gym and then out of the gym. It's going to be less likely to be social with your friends and your family. You're going to be less likely, like you said, to take off your shirt and feel comfortable in your own skin. And a lot of us get into this. You know, I you know, obviously have a, a competition history, but before anything, I got into this to build my confidence. I suffered from an eating disorder. And so I just really wanted to rebuild my body, both physically mm-hmm. and then also mentally. So we have to realize that it's not just about the external, but it's also about the internal. And part of that is our mentality. So if we're feeling better, we, we feel that we look better, it's going to help our progression in the gym and out of the gym, which is so important. 
Yeah. And on the flip side, before we move on to the next point, I do think there's somewhat of a fine line there where, again, I think we can easily like take that and that could apply to the individual who's just trying to stay too lean. They're not feeding themselves enough. They feel like shit, but it's like, hey, I really want to look this specific way or I feel like I need to look this. Like I talk to a lot of coaches about this. Like I need to look this specific way for Instagram, but like, hey, your body is saving you all the signals that we need more food and you're not progressing because of that. I think it is easy to like go a little bit too hard in that direction when we're talking about building bases. So I think like for the listener, it's important to understand as well. Like there is definitely a fine line there. hundred percent. And I really think it comes down to the individual. So what is lean or what is a high P ratio or what is a sufficient surplus for one person will not be for another based on how someone's metabolism adapts, um, how they respond to different inputs, whether that's nutrition with training, everything's individualized. So a lot of times I get on these podcasts and I try to give some general recommendations, but if you ever notice in our conversations, I give a ton of context because I work with people from all different you know, walks of life and backgrounds as well as goals. So it's really right. hard to pin me down to an exact answer. I'll give ranges, but I can never tell someone, You know, I get a lot of uh, inquiries whether it's through email or through DMs or even after the podcast that I do. And someone will want an exact prescription for them. And I always tell people I don't have protocols because a protocol would be a one size fits all. I can tell you exactly how many calories you need, how to incrementally increase it. I don't have those. I have principles. So say this lean gains approach, I believe in taking a moderate surplus, but what's a moderate surplus for one person may not be for another. So it's always coming back down to the, the person's response, the individual that's in front of you, as well as biofeedback, which is why on every podcast that we've ever done together, biofeedback is one of the number one factors that I cover because I need to be able to gauge that individual client's response to the inputs, to the changes that I'm making, and then adjust and course correct based on what that individual's feedback is telling me is, is the best course of action. Absolutely. Cool. So let's get into actually setting up your nutrition for building phases, starting with macros for muscle growth. Talk us through kind of generally how you go about setting that up. All right. Um, so in part one, we covered everything to do with calories needed to gain muscle and to maximize lean gains during a building phase. So you know, we're going to focus on the macros, like you said today. Um, you know, actually, right before we do that, I actually do want to clear something up, though, because this is actually something that I got a lot of inquiries and questions about from our last podcast. And this was actually something that I didn't even realize that you DM me and, and asked me about. However, I just caught it before that we got on the line. So I do want to cover this up about my calorie surplus suggestions. When I said a 200 to 300 calorie surplus, I meant a net 200 to 300 calorie surplus above maintenance per day, but we have to realize that our maintenance calorie intakes are a range and adapt upwards over time and throughout the course of this phase. So for example, I'll, I'll give you a personal example. My maintenance calories generally range between say 3,000 and 3,500 calories, depending on my lifestyle, my activity levels, what I'm going through during that particular phase or, or you know, period of my life. So if I were to just go to say 3,200 to 3,300 calories, it may or may not be an actual net surplus. So this is why it's important to track data and biofeedback, like I mentioned previously, and to make adjustments as needed based on how you or your client is responding to the increases in calories. So I want to make this clear. Like I'm not saying take what you're doing now and just increase calories by 200. This is an adaptive process. This, this requires feedback. This requires monitoring. I'm always looking at the all-encompassing you know, picture, and we'll talk later on how to monitor this type of a phase, but it's never said and forget. You know, I believe the best coaches are those that are adaptable over time as their client adapts. 
So I, I don't have these prescriptions, like I mentioned previously, nor do I have this set and forget it approach where I just put someone in a 200 calorie surplus. And because, you know, theoretically due to the research, that's what should be a surplus. That's going to be it because someone could adapt upwards. Someone could, you know, increase their meat levels. Um, someone could drop, <coughs> excuse me, someone could drop their meat levels and put them in a higher surplus. So these are all things we need to take into consideration. So before we go into like the macros, I just want to make it clear. The, the starting is going to be two to 300 calories over maintenance, but that may be a much wider spectrum for someone like myself. If I have a 500 calorie range, I might have to go 800 calories above that range to say, you know, my range is between 3000 and 3,500. If I just set on baseline, my, my intake is 3,250 calories as a, a average maintenance calories. I might have to go to you know, 3,600 calories. And someone looking at me saying that my range starts at 3,000, they're saying, well, he's in a 600 calorie surplus. No, I'm, I'm not. You know what I mean? So it's a, the net surplus. It's the actual quantifiable surplus that is over your maintenance intake for where you are in life, whether it's on a weekly or monthly basis. Yeah. And I mean, just to clarify for the listeners, I was basically playing devil's advocate. One of the most common arguments against the lean gains approach that I've heard is, so if we're only like aiming for a small surplus of a couple hundred calories, like what if we just moved a little bit more or what if we just like mismeasured our peanut butter a bit, right? And we <laughs> erased that surplus and then we're basically in at maintenance or maybe even in a slight deficit. So like, as you said, it's so important to not just set and forget where it's, okay, we are in a 200 calorie surplus, but like we need to look at the data. If we're not gaining all time, we need to increase that and adjust and monitor the feedback. But Anyways, okay, cool. So let's go ahead and dig into the macros then and what that setup looks like. All right. So I always start constructing a client's building phase by dialing in their protein intake first. So just from like an evidence-based perspective, one of the best quality and most re recent meta-analysis on protein intake and muscle growth was done by Rob Morton at a Stu Phillips lab in 2018. And for anyone that knows protein research, like Stu Phillips is the god. He's done pretty much it all over the last 20 years. So this is something that's, that's very reliable and he has comprehensive data from like the last 20 years. And this particular meta-analysis showed that a range of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram was associated with significant gains in fat-free mass in resistance-trained individuals. And this is important because a lot of the studies that we have on nutrition are in non-trained populations. So it's really what I, I always am trying to look for research that's done on people that I, you know, the type of people that I would work with as well as myself, because if I'm looking at these uh, randomized controlled studies on untrained sedentary populations and trying to apply it to people that are super active and resistant training and training hard, it's, it's just not applicable. Um, so this 2.2 gram per kilogram protein intake recommendation is the minimum that I set, you know, my clients at during a building phase as protein is the most important macronutrient in the diet when it comes to things like stimulating muscle protein synthesis, which is going to help build muscle and lower protein breakdown to accelerate recovery while also increasing satiety and managing blood sugar. So it's not only going to have the muscle building effects, but it's also going to help with you know, managing hunger as well as the metabolic effects of helping with blood glucose fluctuations. And then seeing as our goal is to maximize muscle growth while minimizing fat gain during this building phase. I believe in using a high protein intake, and it's one of the number one nutritional levers that I pull um, as it's the macro, which will help the most with building muscle. And it's also the macro that has the highest thermic effect, meaning we burn approximately like 20 to 30% of the calories we eat of protein through the process of digestion and absorbing it. 
um, which is one of the reasons why we often hear that protein can't be converted and stored as fat. And that's not theoretically true. However, it is the most, it, it's the most difficult macronutrient to convert and store as fat. So if we're going to push any macronutrient high in the diet, especially when we're in a surplus and more likely to gain fat than if we were eating at maintenance or in a deficit, I believe protein is the most beneficial macro to do so with. And then we also have seen through multiple studies from researchers like say Jose Antonio or Dr. Bill Campbell and Stu Phillips that using higher protein intakes, you know, that are above this 2.2 per kilogram standard generally yields more lean gains on well-trained individuals. So basically what many of these studies have shown is that a high protein diet may not lead to greater increases in muscle, but they've led to the same increases yet less increases in fat mass. So you're basically increasing your P ratio. You're having a high, higher P ratio because you're gaining more muscle and gaining less fat. So it's less skewed. And so we also have data that shows that very high protein intake, like even between the three and 4.4 gram range, uh, have no drawbacks from a health perspective. So for anyone out there that thinks they're going to, you know, shoot their kidneys by, you know, having high protein intake, or they're going to have any of these deleterious effects or their body can't quote unquote absorb, you know, higher amounts of protein. That's just not factually true. doesn't mean we have to go to the extremes of the range because honestly, that, I wouldn't suggest that either. However, it's not deleterious to your health. So with many of my clients, I'll use between like say 2.2 to three grams per kilogram, especially since they're in a surplus and we have extra calories to play with. So it's not like when we're in a diet where if I was to push, you know, protein super high, it may displace other nutrients and cause them to have to take away from other macros. Whereas when we're in a surplus, you know, we have more calories to play with. So it's not like I'm going to lower carbs and fats to, you know, allocate for that higher protein. And I'm not going to put them at a suboptimal level of either fats or carbs. And then another reason that I'll use a higher protein intake, or, or honestly, I'll even sometimes increase protein during a building phase is because as my client's calories intakes go up, their, imp their protein intake is going to go up from non-complete protein sources like carbs. So if someone's eating, you know, say for example, I have a male client eating 500 grams of carbs a day, they're going to be getting a lot of trace protein, you know, from their carb sources. So if I were to keep their protein intake the same, um, like say if I did a macro plan and per meal, I had them, you know, eating 50 grams of protein, um, I'd technically be lowering their protein intake from quality protein sources that have a complete amino acid profile and that will maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So as calorie increase, you know, intake increases, I'll make sure that their protein intake from whole quality complete sources is kept high rather than just having them hit like a protein target per meal that includes both those proteins from complete sources and then trace protein from their carbs and fat within that meal. And just from my own personal experience, what I've generally noticed and seen with clients is that by keeping protein intake high, both in terms of dose per meal and quality, this often leads to leaner building phases. As like I mentioned before, when we see in with higher protein intakes is it has a better P ratio. So it essentially has this repartitioning effect where more of the weight that you gain in a surplus is muscle and you accumulate less body fat, which is something that I've seen in practice with many clients when I've increased their protein intake from say a lower or moderate intake to a higher intake during a building phase. So that's, that's how I go along with protein. And, you know, it's not that you necessarily have to get over 2.2, but I've just seen really good anecdotal benefits from doing so. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. And I, I like how you lay that out where more protein past that about one gram per pound of body weight or 2.2 grams per kilogram isn't going to necessarily lead to more gains. 
but it is a good bet to offset more fat gain. So like overall, like the ratio of muscle tissue to fat that we're gaining is going to be improved, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cool, cool. So let's dig into fat then. How do you typically go about setting that? All right. So when it comes to fat, uh, I'm going to make sure to include enough to cover our bases. By that, I mean that I'm basically looking to hit first and foremost, their essential fatty acid requirements, which can be done through, you know, a quality omega-3 source like fatty fish or even fish oil, as we need to get these fats from the diet. And that's why they're called essential. So it's not like we're going to be able to manufacture them ourselves. So I'm making sure to include enough fat as well to maintain hormone function and everything we need for muscle growth and health. And usually that intake is in the range of say 15 to 25% of total calories. But above that level, going higher in fat doesn't seem to have any additional benefit to hypertrophy training uh, performance. So I generally won't include more than that percentage unless a client prefers it. And if if that's the case that they prefer a higher fat intake, we might edge up towards 30 or 35%, but it's going to be based on the client, you know, the individual that's sitting in front of me. And I do explain the fact that they're displacing some calories from say carbohydrates that could be more beneficial. Okay, absolutely. So with that, um, do you feel like you coach a lot of people who say like, hey, anecdotally, I just feel better on a higher fat intake? Is that something you come across? So anecdotally, I'll say I've had a lot of individuals that have come to me that believe they respond better to a higher fat intake. And they'll say things like they're carb insensitive, um, you know, or, or, you know, that's actually not really a term, but it's used by like the layman. And so it's really that they're suffering from insulin resistance. So they're, they're suffering from effects like they're having these blood sugar fluctuations where they get a blood sugar high and then they feel um, hypoglycemic. So they get like this blood sugar crash. And they're having these peaks and valleys when they eat carbohydrates. And they also notice that they're more water retentive when they eat carbs. And that makes sense because for every gram of glycogen that you store, we bring along three to four grams of water. So what these, you know, a lot of these clients have noticed is that they look leaner or they look drier. They have less water retention when they take a higher fat approach, but you know, and and generally when they come to me, if they're in a building phase and that's our objective, I'll keep them on a higher fat approach. However, as I start ramping up training intensity, training volume, I, I start explaining the benefits of potentially increasing carbohydrates. And I also am tracking their blood sugar. So I'm looking at how insulin, you know, sensitive they are as compared to when they started with me. And generally, as I increase insulin sensitivity, I'm also increasing their their carb tolerance and their ability to handle and utilize carbs more efficiently. So then they're, they're less carb phobic. Like I have a lot of clients that come to me that have been proponents of keto and things of that sort. And so in time, I never do a drastic switch unless I find it's necessary. I've had certain clients that they were basically on a protein sparing modified fast and thought they were doing keto because they were utilizing um, like the ketone, uh, um, like the urinary analysis strips, but it was literally because mm-hmm. they were on very trace, you know, trace carbohydrates and they were on very low fat and then high protein. And so with those individuals, I'll switch them over into a different type of formatted diet. However, when someone comes to me on keto, I just, you know, I start to manipulate things slowly and gradually based on what that client is ready for, because they have to be ready for change. You know what I mean? You can't force it upon yeah. them. So I just educate them throughout the process. But really I do, I find people that, um, it's maybe someone's like a taste preference. They might like a little bit of higher fat. They want some meats in their diet or something like that, but they're not dead set. And that's um, fortunate in that regard that most of the clients that I encounter, they're not dead set on one or the other. They're looking for what's optimal. They're coming to me because they want to get educated on what's the best route. What's the best method and and plan of attack for the goal of gaining muscle and increasing lean body mass while minimizing body fat. 
Absolutely. I feel like a couple of years ago, that was a conversation I had a lot more frequently than now, <clears throat> where it seemed a lot of women, especially, were starting and hey, they come from this background where the carbs were very hard, very much unionized. And it was a process of like over three to six months slowly transitioning to working in more and more carbs and like, getting them comfortable with that. But that does seem to be less common. But finally, so just to clarify, so past that 15 to 25%, because typically the argument for higher fat intake is hey, your hormones will be in a better place with more fat. This is going to better support your hormones, et cetera. What you're saying is we probably aren't going to see any additional benefits hormonally from eating above that 15 to 25% of our total calorie intake. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually don't have data on the percentage fat intake needed to optimize uh, hormone uh, you know, function. But what we do see is that generally the reason that there's this correlation. Now, keep in mind, correlation does not mean causation. The reason we see a correlation between low-fat diets and low testosterone values is because we see that in bodybuilder case studies, but we have to keep in mind that A, these guys are at extremely low body fat percentages, and any data that really, you know, if you really look at the fat intake data or the um, you know, fat loss um, trials and things of that sort, it's that they're in a state of low energy availability. So it's not only, it's honestly low body fat stores that are causing hormonal dysfunction because that's one of the main components of metabolic adaptation. It downregulates sex hormone and reproductive hormone production. So it's not the actual fat intake in and of itself. It's that everything's low across the board except usually protein. Um, so it's not that taking in more fat, as long as you have covered your essential fatty acids, going above that is not going to have a transient increase in testosterone values. It's that, and, and especially when you're in an energy surplus, which is going to optimize hormones in and of itself. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. I just think that's an important thing to clear out because that's like the most common argument I hear against this. So finally, then let's dig into how you're going about setting carbs. Yeah. So honestly, when it comes to carbs, um, I'm going to take the remainder of calories a client has left in their totally daily intake and allocate them to being made up by carbs. So whatever percentage they have left, 55%, whatever it may be, is going to be allocated towards carbohydrate intake. Okay. Absolutely. So why is it that you're then, um, like when we're looking at optimizing muscle growth, why is it that you're skewing so much of this towards carbs versus fats? All right. So like I mentioned before, whenever I'm creating a program for a client, I always consider a client's preference in terms of mm -hmm. whether they prefer carbs or fats. And I also make sure that the diet is one that sets them up to be metabolically flexible. And really what I mean by that is metabolic flexibility is your ability for your muscle tissue to shift between using carbs and using fat for energy based on what you're doing. So for, mm -hmm. for example, when we're resistance training, we want our muscle to be able to properly utilize glucose to fuel this activity. But then when we're resting, such as when we're fasting or you know, have went several hours without a meal, we want to be able to effectively burn fat for energy. But say that a client doesn't have a preference between carbs or fats and is metabolically flexible and insulin sensitive. So there are some caveats here. I want them metabolically flexible. I want them insulin sensitive. Um, in most cases, I'm going to bias a higher percentage of the diet from carbs than from fats. And I always look at this from both a physiological perspective, you know, on how these nutrients are stored and also what potential benefits we can get from using more carbs than fats. And so we got to look at it from first and foremost, just from physiology. How are these nutrients stored? When it comes to dietary fats, dietary fat is directly stored as body fat. And it, as it's easily, you know, it's extremely easy to store fat in adipose tissue and much easier compared to carbohydrates. And then, you know, we have this 
you know, especially in this industry, a lot of people think that carbs get, you know, stored as fat or because insulin shuts off lipolysis or the process of burning fat, that carbs can make you fat, which they can in calorie excess. But um, the process of de novo lipogenesis, which is the conversion of carbohydrates into fat tissue, is an extremely energy inefficient process. So even if you're eating a high carb diet, de novo lipogenesis only accounts for about one to 2% of the body fat that you store. So really carbs do not get easily stored as fat as our body basically wants, you know, like the path of least resistance. It wants to do the least work and wants to take the most efficient process of storing nutrients. And so it would rather take the dietary fat that you take in through whatever sources you're taking in and turn that into stored body fat, then go through this process of DNL, which I've seen in some studies burns between 20 to 25% of energy intake in that process. So you automatically lose a, you know, a good chunk of calories if you are over consuming carbohydrates. So you're not even going to store that total percentage of the carbohydrates that you take in. And this is also why if I'm taking, say someone, the client doesn't have a preference, I will take a more moderate fat approach when I'm where I have a client in excess of calories, especially as I titrate the carbs higher, because the, you know, the more you push the carbs and push the calorie surplus, the higher the likelihood that excess fat that you eat in conjunction with that will get stored as body fat. Okay, absolutely. So as you said, basically fat is very easy to store as fat, whereas through the process of de novo lipogenesis where we're converting carbs to something that can be stored as fat, basically about 20 to 30% of the overall calories can be burned through that process. Whereas like if we're storing fat as fat, that number is essentially zero. Is that right? Yeah, so the thermic effect of, of fat is zero to three percent. But honestly, you know, I've even seen like high-level researchers literally quote this that all the body fat on your body is from dietary fat. So every ounce of fat, you know, and like we said, if you're eating in an excess of calories, you know, one to two percent of the fat that you'll store is from de novo lipogenesis. But this is based off studies where they overfed individuals for lengthy periods of time in, mm -hmm. you know, intakes that most of us wouldn't take in. We're looking at titrations of 800, 600 grams of carbohydrates per day for an extended period of time. And then after four to five days, they started to um, store carbohydrates as fat, but it was only at a one to 2% um, range. Whereas we know that we have so much, we have a good amount of glycogen storage available between the muscle, between uh, the liver. So we have a good amount of um, storage capacity in terms of muscular glycogen to take on those carbohydrates on board. So it's a little bit um, easier of a process in terms of storing as something that's in muscle rather than storing in fat. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So outside of that, are there any other advantages to us taking a higher carb approach in the building phase? hundred percent. So on, honestly, there are so many advantages uh, that are reserved just for going higher in carbohydrates that are not elicited by fats. Um, so for instance, Carbs are our main and preferential fuel source for higher intensity activities, you know, that are, that rely off glycolysis, which include resistance training. So they provide us with the energy we need to perform at our best. So that's the first thing. And then carbs are not just for energy though. They also trigger a lot of anabolic and anti-catabolic processes needed to build and maintain muscle. So carbs help to trigger hormones like mTOR, insulin, IGF-1. We also know that taking in carbs will help yield a or will yield a greater insulin response in fats, which will allow for a greater anti-catabolic effect as insulin lowers muscle protein breakdown. So you're going to be degrading less uh, protein content, um, which is why they say, you know, carbs are protein sparing. 
And then we also know that just from like an insulin side of things, insulin helps with transporting nutrients into cells and then also facilitates the uptake of amino acid into muscle cells. So there's a greater likelihood that those amino acids that you're taking in through your diet will be used to, to build muscle. Um, insulin also lowers cortisol, which lowers stress and can help promote more of a sympathetic, uh, parasympathetic response. Um, carbs help with glycogen replenishment, which is huge post-training when you've depleted some of your glycogen stores. They're also hugely beneficial for the nervous system because our brain functions off glucose. So they're going to benefit the nervous system because they help lower fatigue. Um, they're more filling per calorie than fat is. So if you look at just like an energy density perspective, because they're lower in, in calories, you're going to get more filled. You're going to have better fiber content, which also helps with giving, you know, providing a greater intake of micronutrients. And then also from like a molecular signaling type of aspect, we see that low glycogen source from going lower in carbohydrates also signal AMK, which is literally the opposite of mTOR. So if you wanted to shut off, you know, muscle growth, essentially, you would stimulate that MK, uh, MK uh, pathway. And then also just from like a visual aspect and just how people feel and look, it helps to increase pumps and muscular fullness. So you not only perform better, but you also look better, which is like we mentioned previously, that's huge. Okay, absolutely. So with what you just touched on there, as far as MPK and that pathway, um, something that I've heard is post-workout, like from the, like within that post-workout meal, really protein is the most important thing. And this isn't something that I believe, but again, it's like someone played the devil's advocate. Whereas mm -hmm. like, as long as we're not training again until like the next day, as long as we add adequate carbohydrates, basically within the 24 hours, we'll have replenished our like, muscle glycogen stores. And it's not necessarily a big deal. That said, from this perspective, it does sound like like within that post-workout meal, when glycogen stores, if glycogen stores are depleted, there is more to that situation than just like repleting glycogen stores within 24 hours. And that could still potentially blunt muscle growth. Is that right? Okay. Does that so from, sense? No, absolutely. I'm going to take it a little bit different of an angle because I, I'm, I believe I'm picking up what you're putting down. What we've yeah. seen in, in research is that we have to think about insulin's action. So insulin helps with lowering muscle protein breakdown, helps lowering cortisol. So from a perspective of insulin secretion in and of itself, having a high protein intake in and of itself will secrete enough insulin, even without the presence of carbohydrates, to shut down muscle protein breakdown and to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So do you need to take in carbs post-workout? No. So if you're in a dieting perspective and you decided I'm going to take something like a um, an insulinogenic protein like whey protein that has uh, a larger insulin response than say white bread post-workout, you're covered. However, if we're going to partition calories based on not only the anabolic effects that they have or you know the signaling effects that they have, but also when they're best utilized, that's when we would switch over and utilize carbohydrates and protein. Because in the post-workout window, we have an increase in the expression and translocation of GLUT4, which is a transporter protein, which essentially opens up the, the muscle cell to accept nutrients without needing insulin. So you're just more insulin sensitive post-workout. So it would be advantageous to take advantage of that time period where your body's going to be more likely and susceptible to taking in glucose and storing it in muscle tissue rather than at other time courses throughout the day where you might be a little bit more likely to store it as fat. So really from an insulin sensitivity perspective, it's advantageous to utilize nutrient timing within that window, but it's not necessary. So for instance, if you're someone that only trains once per day and you don't follow like a high volume, high frequency routine, then you don't have to utilize like a post-workout shake. And I wouldn't recommend that, like, you know, allocating more of your calories from liquid calories to slam down like a carb shake, you know, post-workout. What we do see in nutrient timing though, is that 
taking in intra-workout carbohydrates are beneficial because they lower the catabolic and uh, essentially muscle degrading response of training. And there is, um, I believe it's um, terpening is, is the author. I might be wrong on that, but I'm, I'm almost certain. Terpening did a study on utilizing 50 grams of fast-acting carbohydrates intra-workout and looked at the responses both in ter- terms of muscle protein synthesis, but also cortisol. And those who took in the carb shake as compared to the placebo had lower rates of, uh, and it was calorie matched, calorie controlled. So throughout the course of the day, they ate the same exact amount of calories and carbohydrates. However, those that allocated within that intra-workout window, 50 grams of carbohydrates from a high molecular weight carbohydrate, which is something like uh, your highly branched cyclic dextrin or your dextrose, like these designer carbohydrates that a lot of us use, they actually had a better correlation with modulating. So uh, managing the cortisol response from training, which also led to greater increases in muscle fiber growth throughout the course of the study. So this is longer term. In one, you know, utilizing an intra-workout one day isn't going to benefit you, but over the time course, it's going to help with lowering your rates of muscle protein breakdown. And remember, muscle growth is all about a balance. It's about exceeding the rates of muscle protein synthesis in comparison to muscle protein breakdown. So it is advantageous to take it, but you will, you're right. You will replenish glycogen as long as your your carbohydrates within a 24 hour period from that workout are equated. You're just more likely to more readily and uh, more quickly increase glycogen replenishment in that post-workout window. Okay. That, That makes complete sense. So, and I know like, and I was talking to a client about this the other day because we were shifting, like as he gets more advanced, we've gotten more focused on nutrient timing and things of that nature. Basically the analogy I use is imagine like, this is kind of a game of putting a couple pennies in the bank every day or like whatever. We don't have to get a specific amount of money, but like, basically this is like, maybe you're throwing another penny or two in the bank where like within the context of a single session, is it that big of a deal? No, but over time, like it can add up to some difference, right? No, I love that you said that. I always say if it doesn't hurt you and it could potentially benefit you, then why wouldn't you do it? If you are going to have a meal post-workout and you're going to have a you know lean protein source and you generally would either take in a carbohydrate source or go without it, and it's no detriment, it's no inconvenience for you to eat a carbohydrate source post-workout, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you you know, take advantage of the upregulation in GLUT4 and the increased insulin sensitivity and the increased you know, blood flow, which is going to help with nutrient transport? It's just, it's kind of a no-brainer to me, but there are mechanistic research that does look at these small time points, say a week or a few days, and it shows that, yeah, as long as you hit your protein intake, that's what's most beneficial for building muscle and for glycogen replenishment due to the increase in insulin that it provides. But we don't have three-year studies. We don't have five-year studies. We don't have 10-year studies. And and my whole thing is, why would we potentially leave gains on the table where you could scoop those up really conveniently and easily? It's not like you're going out of your way to just combine your protein source with a a rice or a cream of rice or whatever you may take in. I fully agree. And I've gotten us a bit off topic here too. So to bring it back to this discussion around carbs, so really based on this, it doesn't sound like you would recommend high fat or keto for muscle building. No. Um, you know, honestly, when it comes to keto, we know a ton about ketogenic diets when it comes to their use in dropping body fat. And there's multiple lines of research that has shown that if calories are equated, ketogenic diets will perform just as well as a higher carb approach when it comes to fat loss. However, the same has not been shown when we look at comparisons between a high fat versus a high carb approach for maximizing muscle. 
And this is actually something that's super interesting because just within the last few years, there's been more and more studies coming out looking at the effects of following a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic-style diet compared to higher-carb diets on increases in lean body mass when they've put participants on a resistant training program combined with a calorie surplus. So we need all these things because we can't just look at, at one thing in isolation. We can't just look at you know ketogenic diets. Is it going to increase lean body mass? We need everything controlled. We need the diet controlled. We need um, a comparison group that is following a higher carb approach. We need a controlled resistant training program and to ensure they're in a calorie surplus. We actually have a recent study that, that looked at that by Vargas. And essentially what they did was they took resistance trained males and split them up into two groups where one followed a ketogenic diet and the other followed a non-ketogenic diet that was higher in proportion of carbs. And this was extremely well controlled. So they, they had dietitian created meal plans for each participant, and they did it based on their total daily energy expenditure and then put them into a moderate surplus. So each individual got the, the same type of surplus based on their specific needs. And then in conjunction with that, all subjects were given a protein intake of two grams per kilogram per day with protein making up 20% of their total calories. So between both groups, it was protein equated and it was also within that threshold of protein intake uh, to build muscle that we discussed previously. And so when we look at the differences in diet, the ketogenic diet got, I believe, 70% of their daily intake from fat, whereas the other group following the non-ketogenic diet got about 55% of their intake coming from carbs. So the only big differences were their carb and fat values. Calories were kept the same, protein intake exactly the same. And uh, another thing about this study that's great, especially when it comes to like a coach like you or myself that's working with trained individuals, is that they not only controlled nutrition tightly, but they also put them on a solid resistance training program where they had each participant follow an upper-lower split where I believe they, they did it four times a week and each body part was hit twice per week. And they also controlled for... Um, perceived effort. So they had them trained to failure. So everything was equal between the two groups. The only difference was the dietary uh, approaches that they followed. And so there were, you know, the results showed that there were no significant change in fat mass between the groups by the end of the study, despite being in the same surplus. So that was equated. We obviously know calorie balance is king. But by the end of the study, there was a difference between the lean mass gain between the two groups where the non-ketogenic diet group gained more lean mass than the keto group and also gained a significant amount of lean mass throughout the course of the study, whereas the keto group didn't make any significant gains in lean mass. So what we see there is that the ketogenic diet group did not gain any significant increases in muscle tissue. They didn't gain significant increases in fat, but they kind of just stayed the same. And so there were the only ones that actually gained lean muscle tissue and had something that was tangible at the end of a resistance training study, I believe it was 10 weeks, you know, it was progressive. They had high protein intake. The only ones that truly benefited from them were those that were following the higher carb approach. Super interesting. And you did such a good job summing that up. Again, like if we're going to put so much time into it, <laughs> why not make sure we're actually reaping the benefits of it, right? Because there's there's not a worse feeling than going through like a six month building phase, especially like 10 weeks is still a pretty good period of time. But like we're going through like six months, eight months, a year of building. We want to make sure you're actually getting something out of us. You actually look different in the subsequent fat loss phase or that you're not at the end of the building phase versus like just potentially spending six months a year spinning your wheels, right? 100%. And that's, that's why I'm so into education with my clients. So like I said, it's all about the client's preference, but I also believe in, in the education aspect because I'm sure you can relate to this. A lot of clients and a lot of people in fitness in general, 
they have misconceptions or, or misinterpretations of what they hear. You know, someone will be an influencer on Instagram and promote ketogenic dieting for, you know, great fat loss and muscle building and all these things. And they hear things and they, they want to apply it to themselves. So my whole thing is I'm not trying to, you know, uh, disprove them or I'm not trying to, you know, tell them that they're wrong. I'm trying to lead them to the truth. And I'm just trying to do so by educating them. And so when it comes to someone, you know, if you're out there listening to this, think about what this study just showed. There's, there's multiple drawbacks to keto when it comes to increasing mus- muscle mass. And that's what our goal is in this building phase and especially in the course of this podcast. And we've got to think about it from a theoretical perspective. Why would that be? If calories are equated, if protein's equated, what would be the disadvantages? And like I, I mentioned previously, there's a ton of advantages to high carb, you know, higher carb intakes that are not elicited by higher fat intakes. We also have to think about the fact that fat doesn't fuel the training we need to do to build muscle. It's not going through anaerobic glycolysis. It's not fueling that activity. So you're mismatching your macros to your nutrition or to your, your training. It's also, it could be the fact that it may be harder to maintain a surplus um, because we do have some lines of data that show that being on a ketogenic diet does have an appetite suppressing effect. So it could be that it's harder to maintain that. So you're just making it more difficult to maintain that surplus, which is great if you're trying to stay at maintenance or you're trying to lose body fat. But if the goal is to gain muscle, like we discussed in the previous podcast, we want to be in a surplus. And then also another thing, which I don't see a lot of people highlight, and this is more on like the in-depth physiological aspect of this and of the ketogenic diet, but we see a decrease in this enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase. And this is a major enzyme in glycolysis. So by going keto and using a high fat approach, our ability to use carbs during higher intensity exercise is downregulated. So we kind of like lose this ability for our muscles to use glucose for energy. And then on top of that, besides the performance aspects, we know that fats are more uh, adipogenic, so more fat building than carbs when consumed in excess. So I really don't see, you know, if someone came to me and say, what is the optimal? And that's what we're talking about today. How do we optimize lean gains in terms of percentages or our approach nutritionally? I would say we would utilize a high protein, higher carbohydrate and moderate fat approach. Oh. All that makes complete sense. So one thing you touched on a little bit in our last episode, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into was calorie cycling. Basically, why is that something you suggest? What are the benefits of that? Absolutely. So actually, this was one of the number one questions that I got from people after this podcast. Um, so, you know, just from my, my viewpoint, I'll, I'll provide some research, but also from my experience, we have to realize that when we train, we see this increase in muscle protein synthesis levels, which are highest after training and generally peak within 24 hours for most trainees. And in some research, you will hear people quote that it's 48 to 72 hours, but keep in mind, I'm talking about well-trained individuals. So if you are intermediate or advanced, most of that literature doesn't apply to you. It applies to beginners who were non-resistance trained when they got into the study, and then they had higher elevations and longer elevations in muscle protein synthesis after those studies or after those training. And we actually have a study by Miller et al. that looked at well-trained individuals and showed that in well-trained individuals, they're in the state of increased anabolism for up to 24 hours after training, which is one of the reasons why I like to program more calories towards that period when they're going to be a better utilized and also partitioned towards building muscle. And we also have some research that indicates that when you have more of your calories distributed between your workout and the post-workout period, you get better nutrient partitioning. And we see that both in terms of better ratio of muscle growth, as well as fat loss when it comes to being in a calorie deficit. And this is one of the main reasons why I cycle calories and place most of my clients' cal- like nutrients and calories within this period of increased 
anabolism and better nutrient partitioning, which occurs on training days. So just like we cover nutrient timing, you know, I want to leverage if there are physiological benefits to doing something and they're not taking away from anything, nor are they inconvenient or harmful, I'm going to leverage that because people are coming to me. I have guys that, you know, are in the IFBB pro circuit. They're looking for that five extra percent. If it's someone that comes to me and says, you know, they're a lifestyle client that they just want to be healthy and be in shape. I'm not going to stress a lot of these things, but if they tell me, listen, I want to step it up a notch and maximize every single aspect. I'm going to do exactly what I see both in research and with, you know, my own clients and I've seen the most benefits for. And then also from just, you know, a fear, you know, from my own experience, I also, you know, I wouldn't place as many calories on off days because we'd make better use of those calories, eating them on training days. And especially around that period workout window. So like I mentioned previously with the study intra workout, they saw better nutrient partitioning and better, you know, responses to cortisol as a result of taking in carbohydrates intra workout. So that's something that I would utilize with a client that we're pushing a surplus in and that has extra calories to spare. So really when it comes to calorie cycling, my goal is to have a greater surplus of energy on training days in comparison to off days, because what a lot of people don't realize, and they reached out to me about this, why wouldn't we use the same plan across the week? If that's convenient for your lifestyle and that's what you prefer, by all means. But if you, you know, just from my vantage point or my viewpoint, if you were to use the same surplus across the week on both training and non-training days, you'd actually have a higher surplus on rest days than on your training days because your energy expenditure is lower on rest days. And then, you know, as far as like the benefits that I've seen in terms of calorie cycling, I've seen it helps clients stay leaner by having some days, you know, at a surplus and then other days at maintenance. I also believe that allows for longer, more productive lean gaining phases. Um, you know, in terms of like I just mentioned with the energy expenditure differences, it allows me to more accurately suit their calorie needs and intakes to what they're actually burning on a daily basis, which will fluctuate between like, you know, off days and training days. It will be lower on off days. And then it helps with appetite, you know, and controlling things of that sort because you're not constantly stuffing yourself on a daily basis. And another thing, just from like a psychological aspect, I find that it helps people be a lot more productive on those off days as they're not worried or they're not tied down to eating as much. So it's just like a little bit of a break. Okay. Absolutely. So you're someone who trains. If you have a couple more minutes, man, I should ask that before I just go off on all these questions. Yeah. Do your thing, man. I have uh, 20 minutes. Okay. So you're someone that trains super early in the morning. I know you said you're going to have to start getting up at like 345 and go to the gym. Um, which is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I imagine you can't get in a bunch of food like pre-workout. So for you, is this just like we're biasing a lot of carbs to or a lot of carbs intro workout and then like those next two meals post-workout are pretty heavier? Just like I'm curious what that looks like or what this looks like for you in application. Absolutely. So what I do is I, I do get up quite early. I try to time my pre-workout meal 60 minutes prior to my workout at least. And I'll usually use a combination of, of a fast acting or a fast digesting protein, like a whey uh, protein isolate or a hydrolysis. And then I'll also put that in conjunction with something that's quick acting and that's low volume, like a cream of rice, where I might use um, you know, a high molecular weight carbohydrate powder. I might just mix that in a shake. And so I'll have something that's light on my stomach. And then I'll actually include... Um, I'll start my intro workout and I use quite a large intro workout, you know, up to hundred, 150 grams of carbohydrates at times, depending on my need in, you know, in terms of the peri workout window. But here's the thing, I'll start sipping that 30 minutes out. So I'm already about, you know, if I'm utilizing hundred grams of carbohydrates in my intro workout, I try to finish half before I get to the gym. So I'm already preloaded with glucose. And so then I'm working through my working sets. I'm upregulating glute four translocation. I'm increasing insulin sensitivity. And then I drink that and I finish that before I finish 
my, um, my workout for the day. And then I'm able to have, because I've just taken in nutrients and I actually posted about this today, um, about giving a break between your actual workout and the time you eat your post workout meal. And that could be a break, like an hour. You know, I'm not rushing my clients to, to utilize this anabolic window, because honestly, if we were to go into the depths of nutrient timing, we see that it's more like a anabolic barn door. You know I mean? It's a larger period than we used to think that you had to get protein and carbohydrates 30 minutes after your workout. But what I really like to do is think about just like the autonomic nervous system inputs. When you're training, it's a stressor on the body. So you're in a sympathetically driven state. You're in a state of fight or flight. Your body's fighting against weight, essentially. And, and progressive overload. So I'm in a sympathetic state. I'm not as readily accepting of large nutrients, especially ones that are not pre-digested. So when we look at carbohydrates in your workout, I'm using a high molecular weight carbohydrate that has low osmolarity, meaning that it's going to get absorbed right into the intestinal system almost immediately and it's pre-digested. So I'll utilize something like an EAA formula, pre-digested amino acids, as well as a high molecular weight carbohydrate intra-workout. So that's not going to impede my digestion. But after my workout, I'm going to get into a parasympathetic state. And post-workout, I bias a large majority of my carbohydrates. So generally, I'm looking at taking in within that peri-workout window, meaning pre, intra, and post, about 50 to 70% of my, my carbohydrates for the day within that window. When I'm A, most insulin sensitive, it's most beneficial to fuel both training and recovery. My second meal after the post-workout window is also a larger carbohydrate meal. And then from there, then on, my meals get a little bit smaller throughout the day. Also, in terms of my last meal of the day, just based on if you look into like circadian biology and chrononutrition, eating late in the evening, A, can set off your circadian rhythm and having very large meals, especially closer than two hours before sleep can disrupt sleep patternings. So I try to bias things. Obviously, it works a little bit different for me because I train so early, but also you are just from a circadian biology perspective, you're more insulin sensitive in the morning. So when I have 200 carbs, grams of carbs post-workout, it's like 8 a.m. in the morning. It's 9 a.m. So it's right within that patterning where it's helping to, it's when I'm going to be most insulin sensitive, A, because I just trained, and also because you are more insulin sensitive in the morning. So that's how I bias it personally. Okay, absolutely. I appreciate it. I was just curious as far as how you went about doing that. I think that's helpful for the listeners as well, like taking that in application. So my final question for you would be, how do we go about monitoring progress in a building phase? All right. So there are many variables that I track in a building phase to monitor progress besides like the nutritional aspects we discuss. And honestly, I rely heavily on my client's biofeedback, which is something that we've discussed before as well. And this is because biofeedback can show how a client is responding to the current nutritional model that I've set. It shows their state of energy availability and how their body is uh, using the current calorie intake that they're at. It also shows how responsive they are to the current training stimulus in terms of their training performance, as well as their recovery capacity. And it also helps me to gain any insight to any issues or bottlenecks within their lifestyle that aren't within my control, but that I can help through the adjustments that I make to say their nutrition, their training, to their sleep sleep hygiene, all those type of things. So besides nutrition, the first thing I'm looking at during a building phase is body weight. And so I have most clients take their scale weight daily in order to get a weekly average so I can track their body weight trends over time. As we want to see body weight going up over time to ensure they're in a surplus. That's just an energy balance thing. You can't, if you're not gaining weight, you're not in a surplus. And the big thing here is I really want to impress upon people that I'm looking at average weekly weight. And the reason for that is that some believe like in an off season, just check it once per week or during a building phase. And the reason I don't like doing that is that that's only one time point. And there's so many factors that can influence their scale weight on just one day 
that can throw off our ability to be objective about the data that we're tracking. So we won't know if they're truly in a surplus, if they're actually gaining, if they're losing, because it's just one time point in place. So I really want this as objective as possible. The next thing I'm looking at is progress photos. Um, so I want to see how they look visually. I like doing you know, photos weekly, but then I'm comparing them over a longer time scale, like over the course of weeks and mostly months, as you're not going to notice muscle gain week to week. And this is something that a lot of people like, they don't see a visual change and they get like discouraged. Muscle growth is a very short process. So what I try to do with photos is, yes, I had them take it weekly. I don't expect to see, you know, remarkable changes, but here's the thing. I like to visually monitor the rate of fat gain as well. And especially fat gain to muscle gain in photos as although muscle gain is a very slow process that can come on quickly. So I'm utilizing those photos and I'm comparing not only their muscle gain, you know, um, or muscle growth progress, but also how are they distributing body fat? How are they accumulating body fat? Are we at too high of a surplus, both visually and then also body weight wise? I'm trying to track different uh, data points and then uh, combine them together. Another thing that's huge is training performance. And I'm really looking at, you know, I'm using training performance because I believe it's a great way to assess whether you're growing or not in a growth phase. As Like I mentioned, gaining muscle is a slow process, which cannot always be seen both visually and also can't be measured on a week-to-week basis. And when it comes to training performance, I think many don't monitor it in the best manner. Um, as you know, often what I'll hear even other coaches talk about is that they're simply looking at load progressions in compound movements as an indicator of growth. What we have to realize is this, this completely discounts the role that neuromuscular adaptations play in helping to increase our ability to lift more in those like multi-joint compound movements over time because these movements have a huge skill component to them. So you could be making progress week to week, especially if you just introduce a new compound movement just based on your neuromuscular adaptations and no muscle growth whatsoever. So I'll give you a personal example on this. On, in my last building phase, I ran a delt and arm specialization block. And, you know, although like I'm looking, one of the key indicators of growth that I'm looking for is my ability to handle more load and or reps or even sets on a week to week basis. Um, and especially like in comparison from one mesocycle to another, I was specifically during this phase, looking at my progression within my isolation movements for delts and arms as somewhat of a more objective metric to ensure I was progressing these weak points that I was focusing on in that specific block. And this isn't to say that like progression within isolation exercises or everything when it comes to hypertrophy, but I do think that this is something that we should pay more attention to and strive to improve upon because what I see is that many invest most of their effort and their energy and their intensity into their compound lifts. And they almost see like isolations as fluff work. They kind of just tack it on to the end of their sessions. They might not log them or they're, they certainly don't make sure that they're making progressions on a frequent basis, which is why we see a lot of people where they'll talk about their compound lifts. They'll talk about their hack squat. They'll talk about their bench press. And we see them make yearly progressions within these movements, but they've been doing the same weight on something like a side lateral or a preacher curl for five years and have lagging arms and delts as a result. And I'll tell you, that was me. So I, I know that this, this happens. I've seen it with many clients. So I've been that person that just you know focused on the heavy compound, or compound multi-joint movements. And I was like, oh, well, I'm making progress. Well, yeah, you're making progress because you're neuromuscularly adapting and also your leverages are becoming better. So you're gaining weight, you're gaining size, you know, the, the bench press, you have more of an advantageous position in some of those movements. And so it wasn't the most objective metric. So I believe in tracking all, you know, every exercise you're doing, you should be logging week to week. And then when it comes to say like body weight and training performance, if you see both of those going up, you know, incrementally over time, it's a pretty good indicator that you're, you're adding muscle tissue. And then besides like those type of aspects, I do look at others 
uh, that you know many wouldn't probably consider or even account for during a building phase, but I've just found to be beneficial. So one thing that I look at is step count. You know, I like tracking daily step count average to get an idea of my client's activity levels and some of the calorie outside of the energy balance equation. And for me, this is important because some people will increase their need when I'm increasing their calories, which will obviously increase calorie expenditure. So I'll need to make nutritional adjustments to make sure that they're going to be at that moderate surplus. So like I said, I'm keeping that at 200 to 300 calorie net surplus at all times. That'll change. So if someone's increased meat by 100 calories, I had them at a 200 calorie surplus, they're not in the surplus that we need. They're at 100 calories. So that needs to be adjusted. But at the same time, I've had some clients who tend to be less active during a building phase and who actually, when I didn't track their steps, their activity just dropped. So we're in a surplus already. And then if they're dropping steps, that's dropping energy expenditure. So this could actually increase their surplus and increase their rate of gain past, say, like the 0.25 to 0.5% body weight target that we're aiming for. So I like tracking this to get more of an all-encompassing view of what's going on, especially from like calorie expenditure perspective. Um, other things that I track are more on the health side. I'm looking at blood glucose. The reason I look at blood glucose is it's a marker for both insulin sensitivity and nutrient partitioning. And it also allows me to gauge how a client is responding to the nutrition plan and our macronutrient setup, which is especially important when we're pushing calories up in a surplus as being in excess of calories is actually the number one reason why people develop insulin resistance. So we want to avoid this because if we were to just, if I was to not track this and not pay attention to this, and then someone go, goes and gets blood work and comes back with insulin resistance, this is going to end their building phase early. So it's going to be less productive. And then also from a different aspect is blood glucose. When we see fluctuations or uh, transient rises in blood glucose, it's actually a good way or a good marker that there's uh, disruptions in sleep quality and increases in stress. So I'm looking at this to monitor other aspects. Uh, another thing that I like to track is blood pressure. And this is an important health metric, um, which we can see rise with increase in body weight. So I just want to keep a pulse on this essentially. And then, you know, other things I'm looking at that are especially important, but you know, a lot of times people are overlooking them is sleep. And I think this is one of the number one things people overlook in a building phase. And, and this is important because getting good sleep allows us to maintain healthier levels of anabolic hormones. that are going to help us repair, recover, and build muscle such as, you know, testosterone growth hormone. And then when we see lack of sleep, we see that it will lower these anabolic hormones and increase the amount of catabolic hormones like cortisol and also the catecholamines, which break down things like muscle tissue down to provide the energy that we need throughout the course of the day. So when we see these elevations in cortisol and these lowering of anabolic hormones that come as a result of poor sleep or sleep loss, it has a lot of downstream effects on body composition. You know, It's going to lower our ability to gain muscle. It can potentially cause muscle loss. Uh, and it also increases fat storage specifically in the abdomen. So if you're already in a surplus, you're going to go into a, a low P ratio. You're going to have negative partitioning. And also from like a hormonal aspect, besides like the downregulation and testosterone production that can be caused by elevation in cortisol, we also see that um, you know elevated cortisol levels cause an increase in the production of reverse T3, which is our inactive form of thyroid. So essentially what reverse T3 does is it blocks the ability for T metabolically active T3 to get to the, the cell site, which can not only hinder fat loss, but it also you know, hinders building muscle because T3 is involved in the process of muscle protein synthesis. And then besides those two, um, I'm looking at you know, their digestion, their hunger, their stress management. And so I'm, what I'm really trying to do is get a more well-rounded view of what's going on. And I find that using all these metrics 
um, is more beneficial in that because just tracking one doesn't give us enough info to make the most appropriate adjustments. So not only does this help me from a coaching aspect, but it also, I'll tell you personally, it really helps. You know, I've had a lot of clients come to me from other coaches that don't take this detail oriented uh, approach to building phases. It's kind of like, I just prescribe your macros and prescribe your training. It sets reps, you know, macros and calories and that's it. I find that when I've taken this approach with those that have come to me, not only do we get better results, but it also helps clients become more aware, you know, it increases their awareness and they're, uh, you know, they're more attentive to things that they were overlooking, like their insulin sensitivity or their sleep or their stress management, which can drastically alter how effective these building phases are and the lean gains that they can actually make. So overall, like this is beneficial from my aspect as a coach, being able to make more informed decisions, but also it helps my clients better execute what they need to do. Checking off the boxes needed to really, you know, add pennies into the, the progress bank on a daily basis. Absolutely, man. So well put. I think that it's so easy to go into a building phase and think like, hey, I just need to train hard or I just need to eat a surplus and I'm going to gain muscle. But there are so many more variables here that if we want to maximize our progress, we need to make sure we take into account. So I think this is a wonderful summation of how to make your lean gains phase as effective as possible. I know we have to run here pretty quickly. So um, I will link up in the usual, like where listeners can find you as far as your Instagram, your email, et cetera, your website. Is there anything else you want to plug before I let you go? I think you covered it, my man. But if anyone has, as always with these podcasts, if you guys ever have any questions, a lot of times, especially Jeremiah and I, because we have a good relationship and good chemistry with these podcasts, we get a lot of questions after these. And, and I'm always... I'm very lengthy, as, as Jeremiah knows, and especially anyone that's messaged me. I really like to dive into the details and really provide some context behind the, the recommendations that I make or the advice that I make. So if you guys ever have questions, you know, especially in, in context of this, let us know because we'll, we'll always jump on a part three if necessary. And that's how part two came about because we did have a lot of inquiries or a lot of questions or follow-ups about diving in a little bit deeper beyond just the calorie surplus aspect that we covered on the previous podcast. So if you guys ever need to reach out to me, feel free to reach me at Brandon DeCruz underscore on Instagram or Fitness at gmail.com. Absolutely. Um, and again, I'll have all that linked up in the show notes. And yeah, please ask this question. So many of these podcasts have come from listener questions and we really enjoy those. So um, as always, dude, thank you for being here. Absolutely, man. Always a pleasure.